All right, so chapters 24, 26, I titled this Times of Testing. When I looked at it, there is, in each one of these chapters, a specific test for David in each one. A lot of times when we are in the wilderness, when we're in seasons of wilderness in our lives, tests take place. It's not a bad thing. It, it, it can be a time of testing. And this was definitely a time of testing for David. Um, the wilderness in Scripture is often more of a, a desert-type landscape. But when I think about wilderness, I tend to think of like forests lush trees, walking paths, you know, something really pretty. But when, it, when the scripture is talking about the wilderness, it's, it's most of the time referring to a desert-type landscaping, a place where you cannot survive without some sort of miraculous intervention because the de desert just cannot support human life, right? When you think about that kind of landscape, it could support certain kinds of life that God made for that type of atmosphere, but not human life. You can't grow enough food to live in the desert. You can't catch enough food to live in the desert. So David would have perished had it not been for God's provision in the desert and God's pr protection in the desert. You can also look at Israel. They would have perished in the desert. They were in the wilderness for 40 years. They would have perished had it not been for God's protection over them and God's provision for them. You think about like the cloud by day that God gave them to shadow, shelter them, um, the daily manna that he gave them, the water from the rock that he gave them. So the wilderness is really a great metaphor for us for those seasons of life when we just are despairing, okay? Um, when we need the Lord more than anything else, when the things we usually look to for peace and joy and security, they just kind of dry up. So, for example, like maybe it's a health crisis and all of a sudden you find yourself in this, quote, wilderness season. Or maybe it's a financial crisis or a pandemic, per se, or kids at home forever, per se, <laughs> some sort of family crisis. Or maybe it's a lost dream or a lost marriage, something that puts you into like a wilderness season. You just feel like you're dry. You're in this weary land, right? That's the kind of picture I want us to have when we talk about the wilderness. I don't want to think about lush, wonderful landscapes. I want us to think more about this dry and wilting land where everything's just sort of, you know, bleh, kind of gross. What happens when you're in the wilderness then? What happens when you're in a desert? A lot of times you get really thirsty. Those desert times can leave you really thirsty. But here's the great thing about those wilderness seasons then when we're in the desert Usually, the distractions of life are minimized during that time, while our need for God is maximized. We finally realize during those seasons how much we need the Lord. That's one of the great things that happens, and that is where David is in our passage right now. He's smack dab in the middle of this wilderness season of his life, and he's realizing just how much he needs the Lord. So we spent last week three chapters on him in the wilderness, three more this week, when we start back up in January, he's going to finally get out of it. He's got a little bit more time, but he's going to finally get out of it. He's just smack dab in this hard season of life, and this is the part now where he's going to get tested. God is going to test him during his, this portion of his time in the wilderness. 
We don't, we don't have to fear the wilderness. David didn't have to fear the wilderness. Why? Because because as we saw last week, God met him there, right? God met him in the wilderness. And that's the really cool thing about the wilderness. If you think through scripture and you start thinking about the different patriarchs, where did Abraham meet God? He met him in the wilderness. Where did God become a reality to him? In the wilderness. What about Jacob? When he was out in the wilderness, when he was out all by himself after he had ran away from his, from his twin brother, God met him there and spoke to him there. What about Moses? He met God at a burning bush in the middle of the wilderness. You start going through all of these different people and you see that God meets us during these wilderness seasons. It's because all these other distractions can go away finally when we're in the wilderness. But it's also generally a time of testing, all right? We don't have to fear that because God will walk it through, walk through it with us. So here's the bottom line to all of that. We need the Lord. That's really the bottom line because when you look at our life, so the wilderness is a metaphor for those hard seasons, but our whole life is technically a wilderness journey. We are not where we're supposed to be. We are citizens of heaven. We are exiles right now in a land that is not ruled by our king, right? So we're on this wilderness journey. And so the whole idea then is we need to be constantly seeking the Lord and his help. We need him because we're in the, quote, wilderness right now. And there's no way we're going to survive without him. We're not going to make it without him, okay? And as we go on that journey, we're going to face different tests. But it's the testing of our faith that develops the perseverance necessary to stick with God. We need to stick with him. We've established that. But it's those tests that help develop that perseverance. We pass. You think about what happens when you pass uh, a test. It builds a little bit more confidence for the next time you take a test. You know, I see this even with my kids, especially Michaela. She's not the greatest test taker. I wasn't a good test taker either in school. But when she gets an A on a test, she has that much more confidence to face the next one. You know, and she's like, Mom, I did it. And I just see that build in her. I think we can translate the same thing with us spiritually. God gives us these tests, and we're like, I, don't, I want life to be a little bit easier. And it's not. But God build, we build that confidence then in him, right? That's what God's doing in David in chapters 24, 25, and 26. Now, there's a theme with each one of these tests. It's the theme of revenge. That's what David is really being tested on. And due to the nature of his situation and his innocence, that really makes sense to me, that this would be a true test for him. I mean, if I had somebody chasing me, trying to take my life, and I had done nothing wrong, I would want revenge on them. And I would probably have a really hard time not taking revenge on them. So you can see why this would have been a serious test for David. And yet he does pass. He passes all three tests, building his confidence in God through each one. He has some amazing faith by the time he gets done with this season of his life. In the first scenario in chapter 24, it's the Holy Spirit who helps him. We'll get to that in a minute. In chapter 25, it's a sister of the faith, Abigail that God uses to help provide David a way out of this temptation, a way to pass the test. And then in chapter 26, it's David's previous experience with Nabal 
that encourages him to hold fast. He just saw God destroy an enemy, so to speak, in chapter 25. He, so he can have confidence now. No, I'm not going to kill him. I know God will do it when it's the right timing. You see how that he passed that test, which helps him pass the next one. Okay. James 1, 2 through 4, you all know it. It says that we're supposed to count it all joy when we have trials of various kinds. Why? Because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I really like the way the message version states it, so I'm going to read that for you too. It says, Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and trial, tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. That's the part I really latched on to. Don't try and get out of it prematurely. Let it do its work so you can become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. We're going to come back to that prematurely point in a minute. Now, I'm not sure if every trial is a test, but I do think that any trial can test us. I'm not sure every time we come up with, you know, something hard comes along that it's a test. But anything could test us. Anything could test our faith. God can use all things to grow our faith. But here's the thing that I, I, I thought of this week. I was like, oh, I never thought about it that way. I do think most of the time these tests are pop quizzes for us. They come out of nowhere. You know, when we come up against something that's really going to test our faith, I don't know, maybe we see it coming. Maybe not. But most, I can think of examples in my life where I was not ready. I was not prepared for that one. And I should have been. I should have been ready because every single day, the Lord tells us it's imperative to get up, put on our shields of faith, right? Prepare myself for battle. Prepare myself for any pop quiz that's going to come along. Put on my belt of truth so everything, you know, keep, everything stays in place. Put on my helmet of salvation so I can protect my mind from thinking all the crazy things that I'm going to think about that day all the crazy places that I'm going to go, and I didn't do that. Maybe I didn't do that. And so I was not ready for that test. I was not ready for that pop quiz. So think with me for a minute about what's going on here in chapter 24, okay? Let's just put ourselves in David's scenario, and we can see that all of a sudden this would have surprised him, right? This was definitely a pop quiz. Saul gets 3,000 of Israel's chosen men. Many of those probably fought under David. If they were the chosen men of Israel, I imagine they had a relationship with David. So it's interesting now that they are on the prowl with Saul for David's life. You know, it's, it's kind of an interesting dichotomy to think about. Um, but David's hiding with his men in a cave, and in walks Saul. You can't tell me that's not a pop quiz. <laughs> that's absolutely a pop quiz. And David's men are like, this could not get any better. This is it. And I would have thought the same thing. I would have been encouraging him to go ahead and kill Saul because obviously the Lord just delivered him into your hand. I mean, it seems like that probably was God's will. That's what I would have taken it as. And that's what the men thought. Yeah, they're like, this is it, David. You've won. Go for it. But a stroke of luck does not necessarily mean something is God's will. That doesn't necessarily mean that, although I like to interpret it that way sometimes or think of it that way. It might be an open door or it might just be a wide open door of temptation. 
So how do we know the difference? Well, how did David know the difference? He was walking with God. I think that's how he knew the difference. He was walking with him daily, and so he knew, no, I can't do that. Whether or not he put the pieces together to know it was a test, I don't know. But he knew, no, I'm not supposed to do that. And the only reason is because he was walking with the Lord. He knew killing Saul was the wrong thing to do. But still, he does cut off that corner of the robe. And then, it's interesting, in verse 5, it says that David's heart struck him because he does that. I mean, he's, he has a conscience about the fact that he just cut off a corner of that robe. Now, who is it that convicts us of sin? It's the Holy Spirit. So here we see the Holy Spirit actively working in David's life. And we know he has the Holy Spirit. That's very clear. We know he was anointed and the Holy Spirit rushed upon him from then on. But obviously just through the Psalms, we hear it in the Psalms. We hear it in his worship. And now we see evidence of it right here, convicting him of this sin that he has done. <clears throat> but it's just a little piece of robe, right? You know, I mean, I was thinking about that and I'm like, oh, come on. Saul's trying to kill the guy. If it's just a little tiny corner of a robe, why does David have to be so convicted about that? Okay, here's the reason. Because David's standard for measuring sin was not the wickedness of Saul. His, his measuring of his own sin was the holiness of God. That's why this little tiny minimal offense was a big deal. Because his measuring stick was the holiness of God. The measuring stick was not salt. Compared to Saul's wickedness, yeah, this was nothing. But compared to God's holiness, this was something. This was sin, and sin is sin. So here's your first principle for the night. Every sin is a big deal when measured against the holiness of God. Every sin is a big deal when measured against the holiness of God. Every sin is a big deal when measured against the holiness of God. I don't like to think of my sin in the context of God's holiness. I like to think of my sin in the context of other people's wickedness. He said, I look pretty good. But when I think of my sin in the context of God's holiness, that's really when my sin comes to light. And I realize how sinful I really am. So I just thought that was, that was just kind of a neat, neat stopping point right, now, right there. But if you think back with me to where else we've seen robes in 1 Samuel, this also might make a little bit more sense to us. Do you remember where else we've seen robes? Where have they come up? Yes, when Jonathan gave David his robe is one place, and that was a sign that he was willingly handing the kingdom over to David, so robes are really, really significant when we stop and think about it. Also, chapter 15, when Samuel, was it Samuel? Saul grabs Samuel's robe. Remember that? He, when Sam, uh, who's walking away? Saul grabs Samuel's robe. So Samuel's walking away, and Saul grabs it and tears it. And Samuel uses that as a visual, telling Saul, just like this. The kingdom is going to be ripped away from you and given to another who is better than you. Well, now what do we have? A torn robe. Coincidence? I think not. 
I know, it's, it's crazy how amazing scripture is. It just fits together so well. Also, in 2015, Jonathan pleads with David to never cut off kindness to his family, even when the Lord cuts off every single one of David's enemies. And actually, at the end of this chapter, 24, Saul asks for the same thing. Don't cut off my family. That, again, is just another indication, like he's holding a, a cut piece of the robe in his hand. David is holding his hand, and Saul's like, please don't cut off my family. So there's significance there with all of that, with the wording, with, with cutting, um, with the fact that it's a piece of his robe. And David is feeling convicted. He has promised Jonathan, I will not cut off your family. And now he does promise Saul also, I will not cut off your family. He promises them that also. But herein lies the essence of the real test for David, okay? This is what he is really being tested over. Would David take the bait to skip the suffering? Would he take the bait to skip it all and go straight to the glory? Because if he killed Saul right now, it'd all be over. It would have been done. He could have taken the throne and he would have been king. It would not have been God's way. And there would have been consequences from that. But would David take the bait to skip the suffering and go straight to the glory? Or would he trust God to pave the path? That's what's behind this test. Is he going to go through the suffering? Is he going to be willing to follow the Lord? And that's what brings me back to the way the message states James 1, 2, 3, 4. Don't try to get out of anything prematurely. And this was David's test of that. He could have gotten out of it, would have been a bad move on his part. But David cared more about the Lord's will than he did himself. And so he didn't do it. He didn't kill Saul. He was going to be willing to go through whatever suffering, whatever God's purpose and plan was, he was going to walk through that. He wasn't going to try and force anything himself. Now, coincidentally, does that test remind you of any other test in the Bible? Does anything come to mind? You're thinking of someone being tested to take the bait to skip the suffering and go straight to the glory? Jesus! Yes! He faced the same temptation. Matthew 4, 8, and 9, if you want to write it down. When Satan takes him up on a very high mountain, what's that? In the wilderness, exactly. Everything happens in the wilderness. I'm convinced of that now. The devil takes him up on a mountain and he says to him, uh, all of these kingdoms I will give you and you can have all of their glory. Just bow down to me and worship me. It was an offer to skip the suffering and go straight to the glory. That's what it was, a temptation. And I do have to believe that Christ may have been somewhat tempted. He was tempted in all things and yet he was perfect. He passed the test perfectly, right? He wasn't going to skip the suffering because he knew if he skipped the suffering, he had to skip us. And he was, that was the joy set before him, was being able to take all of us with him. He couldn't skip the suffering to get to the glory. He had to go through it. Hebrews 2.10 says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation Perfect through suffering. What in the world does that mean? Okay, here's how I stated it. It means through much suffering, Christ has succeeded in every place we've failed. 
he succeeded in every single place that we failed. And thus, through his perfect obedience, even when tried and tested, he can bring us into glory. So it's not that he was made perfect through suffering, it's that we're made perfect through his suffering. That's what that means. Because here's the problem with pop quizzes. We're not always going to pass. We're not going to pass every single test that comes our way in this wilderness walk that we're on. Some of them we're going to fail. Sometimes we're going to fail miserably. And the body of Christ is going to have to come along and pick us up, help us get back on track, right? And the Lord is going to have to help us get back on track. But we don't have to worry when that happens because Jesus already passed the test and he got straight A's. And our name is on his report card. That's how that works. So even though we might fail, we can't stay there in that failure. We've got to get back up and go, it's okay. I've got to try again because my name is on his report card. I can keep going. It's all right. I can keep, I can keep walking. It's okay. It doesn't mean we don't try. You know, we know that's not, not the case. Grace is not a permission slip to sin, but is in fact the motivation not to sin. Grace is huge motivation not to. So with the corner of Saul's robe in his hand, David emerges from this cave once Saul is done doing his business. Hopefully he feels a lot better at that point. I can't imagine going to the bathroom in a cave is very fun. <laughs> Jenna's loving that one. Saul's out the door. David leaves enough space in between them, but comes out, humbly reveals himself to Saul in hopes of proving to him that he is not being rebellious and that he is innocent and that there really isn't any evil in his heart. This whole thing was not his idea in the first place. He doesn't want to be, he's not after Saul and he doesn't want to be out in the wilderness. And take notice of verse 8. It says, David bows with his face to the earth and he pays homage to Saul. In other words, David is respecting his enemy at this point. Saul is his enemy. He's trying to kill him. And David is respecting his enemy. And then David goes on. I'm going to read verses 9 through 12. I lost one of my stickies. Hold on. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father. Ah, there's where he calls him father. <laughs> See my father. See the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. You know where this fits in? Romans 12. It's a perfect passage for this. Romans 12, 14 through 21, says this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That is exactly what David is doing here, isn't it? He's paying homage to Saul. He is blessing him. He's not cursing him. And then, if this will ring a bell when we talked about envy. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. 
Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. How fitting is that? Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Hmm. David was not overcome by evil, but he overcame evil with good. He passed the test, didn't he? And what happens then? Heaping coals go on Saul's head, right? And he weeps. He weeps. He's so moved by David's kindness here. You know what I I don't want to miss here is the fact that this is really pointing to the gospel also. This whole scene is David showing incredible kindness to his enemy, his, his payment of good for evil. What does that remind us of? Christ, right? His payment of good for evil. Choosing to bless his persecutor instead of cursing him. That is what Jesus has done for us. He chose to bless us instead of curse us. He chose to be kind to us instead of having vengeance on us when he came the first time. He did not come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. Two verses for that, Romans 5.10, tells us we were once enemies of God. We were once enemies of God. We were his enemy, just like Saul was David's enemy. But Romans 2.4 says it's God's kindness then that has brought us to repentance. It's God's kindness on us that can be like a heaping pile of coals that just brings us to tears when we realize what God has done for us and how undeserving we are of it. So maybe in that moment, Saul just had a glimpse, you know, some, his heart just burst open a little bit and he realized how undeserving he was of David's kindness in that moment. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. That's what God's kindness.